it's uh, they're kind of sweet shirts, uh, optimistic, no doubt, and uh, begun by a company. Two brothers in 1994 started this shirt, and I think they're now in 4,500 stores across all 50 states, 30 countries. Uh, but it, I think they became so popular so fast because it resonates with us. We want a good life. I mean, we're excited to have a good life. I mean, how would you define a good life? I mean, would you define it as uh, early retirement? Would you define it as good marriage? Would you define it as, as wonderful children, maybe health? How would you define a good life? And if you could define it, then how would you get it? Would it be, you know, playing the lotto? Would it be uh, having the right connections, maybe getting a break at work? How would you get it? Well, you know, I, I want to... I'll probably underwhelm you with this answer, but I think that the, that the good life comes from wisdom, the wisdom of God found in Proverbs. And we're doing this overview on the wisdom literature, and I want you to understand that the, that, that the book of Proverbs is, is unique. Um, it's unique in the sense that where God speaks through Moses, he gives the law, God also speaks through the prophets in giving direction but here he speaks in giving us wisdom. He wants to give us wisdom how to live so that we will have a good life. He wants to offer us wisdom. Now, the wisdom is going to come from Solomon. Solomon was the son of David, a king, exposed to many things. He is also uh, preparing to be the king of Israel. Solomon would, would play that role. But those things don't really make Solomon so worthy of giving us wisdom. Rather, it was an experience that he had. And this experience is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 3, where he was sleeping and he had a dream. And God appeared to him in this dream. And God said, what do you want from me? This is maybe the Christian version of the genie in the bottle. But, but, but it's, you're going to see the answer is different. He says, what do you want from me? And so what Solomon asked for is a discerning mind wisdom to lead a people. And here's what God said to him in the dream. He says, because you've asked this and have not asked for long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you've asked for understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. So he's uniquely postured to give us a wisdom. Nobody has the wisdom of Solomon. And so he has written this book. Now, there are many authors, as you read through the book of Proverbs, you'll notice there's other authors. He's given credit because he wrote the vast majority of them. Now, when you look at the book, just easily enough to understand, it's in two halves after the introduction that Caroline read. The book of Proverbs is in two halves. The, the first half is really an extended treatise on what wisdom is. It's like a preface. And, and what Solomon is arguing for is the value of wisdom. Go after wisdom. It's supremely valuable, as John read it in chapter 8. And, and he kind of sets up this imagery of two women. There's lady wisdom and there's lady folly. And he's saying to his son, because it's postured as this king giving wisdom to his son, Pursue lady wisdom. Seek the wisdom of God. Don't pursue lady folly. 
shall lead you to destruction. So that's the first half, is just the value of wisdom. The second half of the book is where you see the, the kind of the compiling of Proverbs. All these Proverbs that you read, these short, pithy little statements that seem to be random, but they're not random. They're not haphazard. It's kind of mimicking the way we teach our children. You know, when our children have the attention span of a gnat, you, you cannot go on for five or ten minutes on money or sexuality, but you have to keep it moving fast, and you see that in the Proverbs. It just follows that same pattern. And then Proverbs ends in chapter 31. Now, if you've read Proverbs 31, most men are like, that's the woman I want to marry. And most women are like feeling absolutely disgraced by this woman. It's not, that's not the role that Proverbs 31 is to play. What Proverbs 31 shows us is it shows us a man at the gate. Presumably, the prince that has been trained through the book. And you see a woman of excellence and virtue. Presumably, lady wisdom. And they've come together in life. So that they're now living according to the wisdom of God. And so the proverb ends that way. Now the Proverbs themselves have a deep purpose, and you heard it in verses 2 and 3. In these words, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and wise dealing. His desire in this book is not to crush you with demand. He's not crushing you with more duties. He's trying to give you insight, skill in how to live rightly. He's giving you these proverbs to guide you in this life, to help you when you're perplexed, to strengthen you when you're weak, to aid you when you're confused, and to warn you when you're proud. That's the purpose of Proverbs, wisdom to live. Now, there are other proverbs that you find in the ancient Near East, Outside of Israel, we even have many of the Proverbs today. Look before you leap. A penny saved is a penny earned. This is different. I want you to see this book is radically different than just normal Proverbs. See, the writer, the writer Solomon, he is presuming a created order. He's presuming that God has made all things, that God stands at the head of all things as the judge, creator, ruler, and he's established a moral order. It also presumes that we are people who are fractured, disordered, that the world is not as it ought to be. You see that in the language of folly and death. Now, Solomon would have drawn this right from Genesis chapter 3. Think about Genesis chapter 3 for a minute. This is the fall, Adam and Eve. They're given knowledge about God. They're given knowledge how to live. And God has set them up only to succeed, right? So what happens? They see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're not to move to it, but they do. And what drives them? It said they desired wisdom. They wanted a wisdom outside of the wisdom that God gave. And in pursuing the wisdom, they rebel, they sin against God, and they bring disorder into God's created order. And the world gets disordered. You see it in the relationship we have with God, where there's distance now, there's alienation, there's fear, there's disattachment from God. You see it in the relationships we have with one another, the conflict, the bitterness, the blame shifting. 
You see the disorder even now in the relationship we have with the world. The world is not working with us. The world is often working against us. In fact, it's interesting because in, in Proverbs, I'll do that ten more times. In Proverbs, it says this, They hated knowledge. They did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not have any of my counsel. They despised my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way. This is an allusion to Genesis 3. They ate the fruit of their way. He's reminding them the disorder that we have is from sin, which has brought folly and death. Now let me tell you, what Proverbs is for, the purpose, is to bring order back to the disorder of your life. By learning these Proverbs and living these Proverbs, you will bring in order to your life. The, the, the wisdom that you pursue, not the folly, the truth that you follow, not the error, that's going to bring about an order. In fact, a scholar wrote these words that Proverbs is God's wisdom for God's people to live in a fallen world toward restoration. In other words, these Proverbs, they are to help you be more human as God intends. They are intended to restore you to the image of God that as you hear these and live these, you'll become fully human as opposed to living in the disorder. The disorder of our worlds that lead us to living like animals rather than people. So, so that's the purpose of Proverbs. This book is for you from God to give you divine wisdom to help you live back in the design that God has, out of the disorder of sin, back into the order of God's creation. Okay, but let me give you some guidelines about how to read them, because they are a little bit challenging to read. They are poetry, and they use poetic imagery. Now, I'm not a poet. I can do the roses are red, violets are blue, um, if you give me a buck, I'll love you, kind of thing. So I can only do the little, you know, the fourth grade stuff, but you've got to be careful when reading this because he uses language and imagery like the mouth of the righteous is like a fountain of life. So a fountain of life. If you're in a, in a desert, an arid land, it's always dry, it never rains, a fountain of water would be life. It'd be life for you and it'd be life for the ground that you, that you till. And so the mouth of the righteous, the words that I speak are to be to you like life. They're to give you life. When I speak to you, I'm wanting to promote life in you. So there's poetic imagery that you have to keep in mind. If you race through the Proverbs, you're going to miss the beauty of them. Not only that, but, but secondly, um, the Proverbs uh, use humor. They use humor to be memorable, even a degree of sarcasm. So a beautiful woman without discretion is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. A beautiful woman, I mean, it's like gold, but without discretion, her value, her beauty just descends. It's using humor to bring about a truth. Uh, the other thing about Proverbs, thirdly, is that Proverbs are principles. They're not categorical absolutes. Uh, they're, they're observations from life. They're rules of thumb. So in other words, look before you leap would be a proverb. It's not always true. If you leap without looking, sometimes you're just fine. But generally speaking, it's true. This idea of the early bird gets the worm. 
you know, it's generally true. So we don't want to absolutize these Proverbs. It's not a promise that God is making to us. It's a principle that we can live by. And, and then fourth, these Proverbs will have consequences to them. So when you read them, you're looking for, they're trying to show you, if you do this, this will be the end. Or if you do this, this will be the end. For example, one of the Proverbs in 23, he says, Be not among the drunkards and among the gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. So he's just showing us the outworking of the Proverbs. So you're looking for these Proverbs to explain to you, if I continue on this path, that's the end I will have. Now, most of us live like we're 12, and a week is forever. And these Proverbs are tracing out to the very end. Okay, let me give you two more. Uh, the Proverbs need to be unpacked. They need to be thought about. A, a proverb is like a compressed truth. You need time to release it, to decompress it. They're short statements. They don't work for bumper sticker theology. They won't work in a fortune cookie. They, you need to think about what they're saying. And, and then last, the last interpretive word is really the interpretive key. You see it in verse 7. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is the interpretive key. It opens the book, it closes the book. And it's repeated 14 times throughout the book. In other words, if you don't fear God, then you will not live these Proverbs in the way they're to be lived. Now, when I talk about the fear of the Lord, I don't mean a fright like, you know, someone jumps, jumps out from a corner and scares you. The fear of the Lord is both a reverence and affection. Reverence and affection. Reverence, in terms of you know the power of God, His holiness and His beauty, and yet affection that he would be so kind to stoop down and save us. So the Old Testament saint, thinking about the fear of God, they would be overwhelmed with his creative power and magnitude, and yet at the same time he delivered them from Egypt. He saved them. He stooped down to care for them. So you have this picture of a perfect father. You revere him, and yet you're not in fear of him, but you love him. And this helps us to understand the Proverbs, that they're not just, here's a thousand things you have to do for me to love you. They are words from a father who loves us and wants us to walk in our full humanity, wants us to enjoy the fullness of life, wants us to have everything in this life of joy and happiness and satisfaction. If you don't read them that way, they're just duty-bound rules, you'll miss much of the import of what they hope to bring. Okay, so th that's the Proverbs, and that's kind of how to read them. Now, let me just touch on some areas that you'll cover as you read these Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs speaks to a lot of areas. It speaks to money. It speaks to sexuality. I, won't cover the, I will cover that in two weeks when I go through the Song of Solomon. You will not want to miss that one. I'm actually looking forward to it. I've never preached out of it, and uh, I'm going to try to preach the whole book in one sermon. But there's plenty of other areas that the Proverbs speaks to. And, and one area is just the pursuit of wisdom by not being the fool. You're going to find, as you read through the book of Proverbs, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to read the book of Proverbs. I, I mean, think about it. There's 31 Proverbs. Uh, most months, or many months, there's 31 days. Just read one a day. 
That's my hope. My hope is that you'll read one. You know, today is the seventh. You can go home and read the seventh proverb. So every day you can be reading a proverb. And you'll, you'll come across, as you read these proverbs, you'll come across the fool. He goes under different monikers. The fool, the simpleton, the scoffer, the mocker. Uh, we are warned, God wants wisdom in your life so that you have a filled, joy-filled life. So he says, beware of the fool. Here's how you would identify the fool. The fool is not the one who is mentally challenged. The fool doesn't, that doesn't mean he doesn't have intelligence. He doesn't have a strong mental acuity. Doesn't mean that. What the fool means is that the one who lacks discernment, gullible, naive, at their young age, gullible, naive, easy to impress. As they get older, the fool tends to be a little bit more obstinate. He tends to not receive instruction. This is key. The fool doesn't want to be disciplined. The fool doesn't want to receive instruction. He has too high of an estimation of his own opinion. He's beyond counsel. He doesn't like to listen. You also know, and the fool tends to repeat mistakes over and over again for those same reasons. In fact, we read in 26, as the dog returns to his vomit, so the fool returns to his heir. He doesn't learn because he can't be instructed. But you also know the fool by his speech. He's rash with his speech. He comes out with opinions before he's informed and perhaps even before he's been asked. He speaks quickly. He speaks arrogantly. You also know the fool by the friends that he keeps, that they're like him. And, and, and he can impress them with his knowledge. He gathers around himself people who are like him. Ultimately, though, you know what the fool is like because of the, of the fruit of his life. He, he leaves a train wreck of disorder in his relationships. Perhaps it's his marriage. Perhaps it's his home with his children. Perhaps he goes from job to job to job to job because every boss that he's ever had is always the idiot. And he's always looking for the next job. Somebody who will finally understand his wisdom. This is the fool. The fool really just lives his life as if there's no God. That's what it says in Psalm 14.1. And I do mean that Psalm 14.1, not Proverbs. That the fool says in his heart there is no God. So he's living as the practical atheist. He could be a religious man. He could be right here among us right now. He just lives without any understanding that God has created an order in which he's calling us to live. The fool doesn't want to receive instruction. He doesn't want to receive wisdom. He doesn't want to be taught. doesn't want to be corrected. This is the fool. We want to avoid him. We'll come back to him at the end. Another area of wisdom that God wants you to have in your life is in the area of work. He condemns in Proverbs the sluggard. The sluggard. Now, you know the sluggard. The sluggard is the one that loves to procrastinate. If he can push off till tomorrow what should be done today, he'll do it. He's like an old engine. It's hard to get it started, and it's hard to keep it going. The, 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 sluggard, the sluggard loves to sleep. The sluggard loves sleep. In fact, the warning in, in Proverbs 6, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? I have to say that I... I've heard those words before in my life. 
But he loves his bed. In fact, he's anchored to his bed. And Proverbs 26, as the door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. When a sluggard starts something, he rarely completes it. His life is littered with half-completed tasks. His delay leads to a delay, which leads to a delay, which leads to, it just doesn't get done. In fact, there's a humorous way that the proverb speaks about the sluggard, that he puts his hand to the dish, but he doesn't bring it to his mouth again. He's too lazy to even feed himself. The sluggard is the quintessential rationalizer. There's always a reason he can't do what he doesn't want to do. And the proverb speaks to this. He says in 22, the sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Now, there were lions in Israel, but they were few and far between. And lions don't tend to hunt in the city during the day. They tend to hunt at night in the field. But what he wants to do is just create an excuse to get what he already wants. He just needs to fabricate a reason to not work. He lives in a world of wishing and not working. Now, when you look at your own life, how do you view work? I mean, what is work to you? Is it the bane of your existence? Is it just what you have to endure before you get to retire? Do you see it as part of the fall? And heaven will be a place where there will be no work? Do you struggle with procrastination? Do you push your homework off? I mean, how many parents have heard? How many students have said, I'll get to it. I work better under pressure, Dad. I work better under pressure. I love that one. So a D is what pressure produces. Okay. I don't think that works. How do you view work? I mean, do you have a list of tasks that were dated in 15? You know, Proverbs, the wisdom is that work is a gift of God to you. That, that work, is, work was introduced before the fall. That work is, a, is not simply a way to earn money to pay for bills. Work is actually a platform for you to use the gifts and the skills that God, by the way, has stewarded to you, has given to you to steward, and, and they're to be, you're to be a mask of God, as Martin Luther says. So you're using your gifts at work, whatever it is, whether it's in computers or in medicine or in finance, in law, that, that you're using your gifts for the good of others, that you want to show God that you're thankful for his gifts and to serve others with them. That it isn't something, we don't thank God it's Friday. We actually thank God it's Monday. We thank God it's Monday because we're going to use his gifts for his glory for the benefit of other people. I know this is like, whoa. But that's the wisdom from Proverbs. We don't build our identity around it. That's the other problem. We go from hating it to loving it so much that we, we live to work. And we have an identity built around work. I'm not saying that. Your identity is being a child of God. It's that balance. Another area that the Proverbs speaks to is the area of friendships. Proverbs has a lot to say about the nature of our friendships. And the way that that wisdom looks, how does wisdom look in a friendship? It looks like loyalty, that that we are loyal, that our friendships last, that, that our relationships with others last, even through trial, 
and adversity. We see this in uh, Proverbs 17, 17. He says, a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. That your friendships aren't like, they run in month stints, and we just move from people to people to people. You kind of see that in high school. You know, when, when, when people are younger, they don't understand the value of a friendship, and they tend to blow through them quickly. But that's even the case as we get older. We have to fight that. But a friendship, a, a friendship that has the wisdom of God has candor to it, that, that we are willing to speak the truth to one another. In Proverbs 17, it says that the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but um, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. Now I've got to find the page. Uh, but then enemy multiplies kisses. Notice the paradox there, that the wounds of a friend are of greater value than the flattery that you receive. I mean, the opposite of a friend is not an enemy, it's a flatterer. Can we speak with candor to one another? I mean, do we, do we sense the words of another, even if it's in correction? Do we sense it as, are we grateful for it? Uh, the biblical friendship is marked by counsel. You know, there is a peril in living alone. You know, you know scam artists go after those who are older and alone, that, that don't have friends. There's, there is safety in having the counsel that you can receive from others. Counsel, not just in encouragement. We definitely need that, and we want that, and I encourage that. But there's also that correction that comes, that adjustment to life. And the psalmist speaks to that. Likewise, he says, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. From his earnest counsel. That sweetness, do you find that? And this is why, as you read through the Proverbs, you're going to see that he's really saying, be selective about who your friends are. In fact, he says, the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way the wicked leads them astray. This is the reason for caution, not just for you as an adult, but for children when their parents are weighing in on who their friends are. I mean, parents, contrary to popular opinion, uh, are, are trying to aid in the friendships that you develop. I remember when I was eight or nine years old, and I sadly don't even remember if I thanked my parents for this. I'm going to call my mother up and ask her, because I forget, but I was probably eight or nine, and I had a good friend down the street that I always hung out with and played together all the time. And uh, one day they kind of put a, put a nail in that friendship and said, yeah, we're going to start pulling back. Now, I wasn't raised in a home that was centered on Christ, that would maybe see that family in need and, and pursue them with the gospel. I think they were just trying to be good parents with what they knew. But, but they, they kind of squashed the relationship, and I remember being a little frustrated with them because I really enjoyed them. What happened, though, within probably three or four years, and they could tell he went on a very dark path and got in all kinds of trouble within the community. And then it probably wasn't five years after that uh, that he got in an altercation with a guy and got shot and killed just a few miles from my house. They knew this guy was headed in a dark place. It was wise of them. I, I want to, if I don't, I will thank them for that. I'm going to call mom today and actually ask her, because as I was preparing this sermon, I thought, did I even thank them for taking the time to move against me and my relationships for my benefit? I don't know that I have, but I will. So, you know, we live in a virtual community now, 
where everybody has friends. It's all digital, of course, but we have all these friends. Do these characteristics mark your friendships with people? I mean, do they, like, do you offer these to your friends? Do you give candor? Do you give counsel? Do you give honesty in speech? Do you give loyalty? Do you expect that from others? You, you can see the wisdom that would be gained from a friend like this. You can see the betterment of your life to have just two or three of these friends. Would your life not soar with safety and satisfaction? It really looks in a way like the friendship we're to have with God. That's what it's modeled after. So not just friendship, though. Another area of life is the tongue, the words that we speak. Now, Proverbs has a lot to say about what we say. And it encourages honesty in speech. You know, it says in Proverbs, an honest answer is a kiss on the lips. Can you imagine with me honesty in speech during this political environment? I mean, just somebody tell me the truth, just once. I mean, instead of watching them get in pretzel-like fashion as they try to explain answers that you know they're not telling you the truth. Or honesty in business. Just, okay, what's the deal? So we're... Carol and I are looking at cars. <laughs> I love shopping for cars. I hate shopping for cars. <laughs> Just tell me what the bottom line is. Well, let me go talk to my manager. You don't need to talk to your manager. We've been through this. I've bought cars for 30 years. You, don't need, you know what the bottom line is. Just give it to me. Well, let me go talk. Just honesty in business. Would you not imagine how beautiful that would be? Or have an honesty in your relationship with your wife or your good friends. Honesty in speech, not just honesty in speech, but also measured speech. The, the Proverbs instruct measurement in what you say. I think you would agree with me that the more time you give me to say things, the more trouble I will find, the more I'll just prepare the rope to ultimately go around my own neck. Measured speech. Carol used to say before, I was going to talk to the kids and really explain truth to them. She said, can you say half of what you want to say? Now, that was kind of hurtful, uh, but it was really helpful. It really was helpful but because, you know, that's the way the Proverbs are. Kids cannot handle a lot of information all at the same time, and I want to tell them everything they need to know about this so that I never have to do it again. That's not the way kids are taught. Uh, not, just, not just measured in speech, but, but appropriateness in speech. Listen to what the psalm says. It says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. You know, you can say the right thing at really the wrong time and bring about a hurt on someone. You know, to, 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 to really weigh your words as it will benefit the listener. You know, that, that I'm thinking when I speak to you of what you need to hear not that you need to change so that you're going to stop bugging me, but what would help you live in a way that would honor God. Another aspect of speech that the Proverbs speak to is the gentleness of it. A gentle answer turns away wrath, we read. Or, or this is good, a gentle answer, excuse me, a gentle tongue can break a bone. You, you know, when, when you throw a firebomb at somebody, then they generally have to throw a firebomb back at you. And it just, what's it do? It just amps, ever, amps up everything. You know, Carol, again, has been just quintessential at this with me. She, she doesn't do that. I'm very thankful 
that she has the maturity to restrict herself. I, I'd throw something out, just a, just a bomb, just felt like throwing a bomb, sarcasm, critical, something, and she'd, she'd always say, and I've shared this with some of you before, she'd say, did you intend to hurt me with that? Did you intend to wound me? It was a great way of letting me know I have misspoken without cranking the thing up 10 degrees by saying something back. A gentle answer can break a bone. I've got a lot of busted bones. I mean, I should be in pieces up here. There's so many broken bones I have. Christians don't have free speech. You may be saying, hey, I've got to say it the way I feel. No, you don't. You don't need to do that. A, because you're probably wrong. You may be misperceiving. You may be misunderstanding. They may have fouled up trying to explain themselves to you. You don't need to say what you feel. You really don't. You know, Jesus warns us very clearly. He says, on the day of judgment, every person will be held accountable for every careless word they say. Matthew 12, 36. If that doesn't straighten us up, how about James? James speaks about the tongue being like a rudder. Small little rudder can turn a really big ship, or it's like a spark in a forest. It can burn, can set a flame, a huge forest. Now, we know this. I mean, if you just have a few years under your belt, you know that you've said things that can be dividing, divisive. What our words can do is bring disorder into the relationships. Get back with me to the beginning of why Proverbs are here. They're to bring order to our life, that we could walk in the fullness of our humanity, and yet our works can dehumanize people and bring disorder into our relationship. Blaise Pascal, a French well, philosopher, scientist, he said that if every man knew what other men said of them, there wouldn't be four friends in the world. Can you imagine? I mean, we can be like a verbal wrecking ball. It took months to build that. We'll bring it down in a few days. We'll bring it down in a few hours. And we've all been guilty of this. But Proverbs tells us that. It says, death and life is in the power of the tongue. So there's wisdom here. Uh, reading through this, there's wisdom. Let me give you one more area. And that is life and death. You know, this area of our lives. There's wisdom for how we live our lives. You know, 75 times in the book of Proverbs, he uses the word path, that we're on this path, we're on this journey. It's going to life or it's going to death. And the psalmist, the um, Solomon, the writer of Proverbs, is trying to direct us away from the path of death. Now, when it speaks about the path of death, he's not speaking about a clinical death, as in the heart ceasing its functioning. It's speaking about a death to relationships, that disorder that I'm talking about. And the road that is leading to death is not traveled simple by the pathological liars and the rapists and the murderers. It's traveled by those people who are living carelessly. It's the simpleton. It's the fool. It's the mocker. It's the scoffer. It's really a lot of the people that we know. He says to pursue the path that leads to life. Because the path that leads to death, once you arrive, there's no turning back. In fact, he says, when the wicked dies in Proverbs 11, his hope will perish. There is no second chance. No, pursue the road that leads to life, he says. He says in chapter 3, my son, don't lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. The road that leads to life is not where you're healing the sick and raising the dead and cleansing the demonized. 
It's, it's when you're using your tongue in a way that is giving life to people. It, it says that the tongue can be sweeter than honey. It can heal the bones that we're reconciling conflict, that we're working for the glory of God, that we're, we're exercising effort in our friendship. This is what the road to life is. It's just walking out the Proverbs. Proverbs doesn't talk about heaven, but there's one verse that seems to imply it, and it's this. He says, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. So you can just imagine you're walking and the light of dawn comes up, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. In other words, our lives are to be like that, where the sun is increasing, the light is increasing, your joy is increasing as you walk out the wisdom of these Proverbs. Your life will get brighter as you walk it out. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 7. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it, enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. To those who find it are few. Remember this, sin will dehumanize you. Sin will dehumanize you. It will make you less human. When I act in lust, anger, bitterness, murder, I am moving away from the full humanity that God has created me to walk in. When I walk in the wisdom that God has given us, we move toward humanity. We move to the full light of day. So we have the Proverbs. They're given to us. They're full of wisdom so that we might move towards full humanity. We've seen some conditions about how to read the Proverbs. I'll post those on the web if you want. Just six things to kind of guide you. And then I looked at these various areas that he speaks his wisdom to. But what do you do now as the Christian? How does the Christian understand this? Well, when you read these Proverbs, whether you're a Christian here, whether you're not a Christian, you can profit by them. I mean, they do have wisdom. They're funny to read. They're kind of interesting. They're very ironic. They're great to read you can't really keep them. Even Solomon, who had the wisdom to write them, could not keep them. His life was a train wreck at the end of it. I'm telling you, a train wreck. What do we do? Well, the Proverbs even speaks to this. In Proverbs 28, he says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Do you see this? The confession leads to mercy. The Proverbs know that you can't keep them. Right now, God knows that the wisdom of God is unattainable in your power, that you're going to fail, you're going to transgress. Confession leads to mercy. Now, that raises up a theological dilemma for us, doesn't it? See, most of us think of a theological dilemma. We think, I would hate to be asked, hey, explain to me you know, the nature of evil. How can evil exist with a good God? I don't think that's as hard a question as, can you explain to me how God can actually forgive? How can God forgive? If God is fully holy, and perfectly just, how can he forgive transgression and sin? He can't without impugning his justice. He can't without, without sin. I mean, our court system's down here. We look at judges to, to bring about justice to the law, which means a punishment must be paid. So how, how do we do this? Well, Proverbs is a book of wisdom, but it's not the only book of wisdom. There is wisdom strewn throughout Scripture. This is one part of wisdom, but this wisdom, as consolidated as it is, looks forward to greater wisdom. 
And I'm speaking about Jesus Christ. So let me read you a passage that Jesus spoke in Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, Proverbs. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying, all the wisdom is pointing to me. That I am now here to declare the wisdom of God by preaching the gospel. Jesus came to declare this perfect wisdom of God through his life. He lived perfectly. He followed the wisdom perfectly. But he hasn't just come to declare wisdom. He's come to deliver wisdom. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is by the cross of Christ, by him dying on the cross, we see wisdom perfectly. We see the judgment of God as he carries the sin and we see the mercy of God as he extends it to those who have faith in Christ. We see the wisdom of God. How can we reconcile a perfectly holy God who can extend forgiveness to the sinner? Christ is our wisdom. This is exactly what Paul writes in Corinthians. He says, for the word of the cross is folly. It's folly. That's the language you'll see throughout Proverbs. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. These are the exact same language that we find in Proverbs. He says, for since in the wisdom of, the, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. But to those who are called Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In the cross, we see this wisdom. We see here the glorious wisdom of God in in, um, the book of Proverbs. We see our inability, but then we see the Son, who is full of wisdom, come and show us and lead us to deliver wisdom to us. So what do we do now? What do we do? Well, first, if you're not a Christian here, we believe it. I mean, we do. We're called to put our faith in Jesus Christ, that he is the wisdom of God, and and that we are unable to be reconciled. We can't bring order to our world. We can't bring reconciliation. We can't fix our world. But we can trust in the one who has come to initiate reconciliation with God and will initiate reconciliation with all things on that great day. So we can believe it. We can repent of our sins and commit our lives to follow Christ. But for those of you who are Christian here, you can read it. Read it. I mean, you read as Caroline read in verse 4, this book has been written to the young, to the simple, to gain wisdom. And that word for wisdom means kind of a street smart, kind of a caginess. We see the word prudence. We kind of giggle at prudence. It's like an old word, an old Victorian word. But, But the word prudence means an ability to navigate temptation having intelligence about this life. Those of you who are already getting wise, it's still written to the wise. He says in verse 4, let the wise hear an increase in learning. The one who understands obtain guidance. In other words, there's greater learning to be had. In chapter 1, verse 20 of Proverbs, it says wisdom cries out in the streets. Who will listen to her? So I would encourage you to read it, to meditate on it, to consider it. Read one chapter a day as I've suggested. But not just read it, 
I would also ask you to repent as you see your life not square with the wisdom of Proverbs. Repent, ask God for grace, for forgiveness. Rejoice over the wisdom that we have in the cross. But repent, actively repent. Invite people into your life. I mean, mean, receive the counsel, heed the instruction, ask for discernment from others. It is opening your life up, no doubt. But I'll tell you, that's how wisdom is gained. And then I would say recalibrate your life. And what I mean by that is this. You know, Proverbs is really a book of, a book of public morality. You know, we have fallen prey in this, in this culture to have this sacred secular divide. We, we, we kind of do the Christian thing on Friday. On, on Friday. Hello. Uh, we do the Christian thing on Sunday. It's great. You know, you do this all the time. You don't have all these people looking at you when you do it. <laughs> I do it and everybody's staring at me. I'm like, well, he screwed up. Well, no doubt. I do know that. Um, so we do the Christian thing on Sunday, and, and then we, we, but we've got we to do it the way we've got to do it for the week. Okay, I've got to keep up. I've got to work. I've got to work it during the week. Let me remind you uh, that there is no sacred secular divide here. That's the whole point of Proverbs. Proverbs is instructing. Proverbs is really a theological statement on God that Proverbs is saying the way you handle your bedroom matters to God. The way you handle your checkbook matters to God. He has wisdom for you, by the way, if you're interested in there, on how you do this wisely. The way you handle your relationships matters to God. The things that you say matter to God. The things that you do with your money matter to God. That what you do with your time matters to God. Remember, God stands as a creator over this moral order. There is disorder in our world right now. But Christ has come about to bring order to our disorder. And the wisdom that we engage here is going to begin to incrementally bring order to our world. So read Proverbs. Recalibrate your life. love a line from J.C. Riley. says, a Christian is a walking sermon. We preach far more than a minister does, for we preach all day long. All day long you're preaching. All week long you're preaching, I should say. By what you do, what you say, how you handle yourself. So there's wisdom to be gained, and it's for us, so that we might bring order back to the disorder of our lives. Now remember, becoming a Christian doesn't mean everything gets perfect. There's that incremental walk where God is sanctifying us. It will not be done alone. It will be done in the context of a community. So let me just pray for us, and then I will orient us to the table.